It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Boston Loose Baseball comes your way post-trade deadline. Another new week of baseball to discuss. The Nats haven't just been kicked around in Philadelphia. The Soderless era is underway. No Danny who's on vacation. I got some thoughts on my first trip to Nats Park since the Soto trade. Plus, we'll look back at what was a pretty gross series against the Phillies. And we'll take a dive into the system with Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, who just ranked the Nats in the top 10 among minor league systems. All coming up on Bustin' Loose Baseball, which starts right now. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball. Danny is at the beach, toes probably in the sand right now. So, he won't be with me. I'm solo, but I've got producer Darius to chime in from time to time. Who's making everything sound good. I'm looking forward to bringing you an episode of Boston Loose Baseball. You'll hear from Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, just ranked the Nats system in the top 10 in baseball. In fact, he's got them 10th. Uh, Fangraphs has them as high as 8, I believe. And they even said if Gore and uh, C.J. Abrams were part of the system still, that they would be in the top five, which is not the case because both of those guys have recently graduated. But we'll talk to Kylie coming up a bit as well. All right, so let's get to it. The Nationals get just destroyed by the Phillies, 13-1 to on Sunday. They were swept in a four-game series at Philadelphia, and big for the Phillies because they're still making a playoff push. They feel like they can make the postseason. They've got a wild-card spot nailed down as of right now. The Nats in that series were outscored 36-12, to which is unacceptable. I mean, I understand you, you sold off Soto and Josh Bell, and you know now you're in a situation. I'm going to put a mic cover on here. So if that sounded weird, sorry. I didn't want my peas popping for the rest of the pod. But, um, yeah, you're in a situation where you sell off Soto, you sell off Bell, and this is now about development almost exclusively, and... The rest of this season matters very little. Here's the problem with that is you can't get beat 36 to 12 over four games. Like, I need you to give me a reason to watch. I need you guys to have reasons to tune in. You need the ball club to be competitive. The Nats in that four-game series hit one home run. The Phillies hit 14. I mean, the Nats just couldn't keep the ball in the park. Uh, the Nationals have the worst record in baseball right now as we talk today on Monday, 36 and 74. Everything's going in the wrong direction at the big league level uh, at this point. So I think there's plenty to dive into, but I want to start with just kind of how bad that series was against the Phillies. I mean, the most competitive game was actually the Thursday game, the 5-4 to four loss in Philadelphia. And in that game, the Phillies, through Noah Syndergaard, remember he gave up 11 hits and in five innings, and the Nats were within a run when the Reigns came and ended the game effectively. Uh, Paolo Espino had given up five Ernie's and four innings. Luckily, they didn't have to use the bullpen. That was the only good thing about the rainout. I'd like to say really quickly that Major League Baseball games should not end when a team is trailing by one and only four and a half innings have been played. 
I understand that official games can be called if there's a delay and if the leading team is at home and hasn't batted yet after four and a half innings. I get the rules. I'm, I'm not dumb. It's a bad rule. You need to come back the next day and finish that game as far as I'm concerned. it's you, You've played half of a game, and the Nationals are right there within a run, and they actually had the momentum at that time, but I digress. Uh, game two of the series, the Phillies won 7-2. to uh, That's when Kyle Gibson just completely shut the Nats lineup down. Eight innings of two-hit ball, uh, struck out four, pitched to a lot of contact. In that game, only Luis Garcia had multiple hits, batting second in the order. He was two for four. Otherwise, you know, they had one hit in the game. I think it was Joey Manessis who was batting eighth, the uh, first baseman. Uh, so, they had dropped back-to-back games. And then you have the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, where the Phillies just completely poured it on. On Saturday, it was kind of a, an Oprah Winfrey game for the Phillies. You get three RBI, JT Romuto. You get a three-run homer, Matt Veerling. You get two RBI, Bryson Stott. And I don't need to remind anyone that Patrick Corbin pitched and didn't get out of the first inning. And I will talk about Patrick Corbin in just a second, because it is the second time in three starts that Patrick Corbin has not gotten out of the first inning. But Jordan Weems came in, and he throws hard. He's 98, had a pretty good run in upper minors for the Nats this year. But the fastball's very hittable, pretty flat, it seems like to me. Gets a lot of the plate, and he gets barreled. Uh, Steve Shishik threw a really good inning, and Hunter Harvey hung a scoreless inning despite a couple of hits. But the damage had been done. You lose 11-5. to And then in the final game of the series, on Sunday, as I mentioned, a 13-to-1 romping. Uh, the top two spots in the order, Thomas and Garcia, 0-for-8 to kind of set the tone. Only Luke Voigt, with two hits and a walk, was productive in the lineup, largely. I do want to commend Luke Voigt, who's already hit a homer and who drove in a run in his first at-bat with the Nationals for what was a pretty productive series in Philly in his debut in Washington. Uh, having said that, I feel for the guy a little bit. You know, he said the right things. He made it pretty clear that he's happy to be here, that he wants to be a leader, that he is, you know, excited to be part of a a young clubhouse and and the exuberance that could rub off. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Bottom line is, I I just think that's all lip service. I mean, he cannot be happy about this. He wasn't supposed to be traded here. Eric Hosmer was. Hosmer said no. Hosmer said, I'm not going to Washington. So they had to flip him to Boston. Meaning then, one of the mutually agreed-upon players that the Nats had given them a list of had to come to Washington as the sixth player, and Voigt was one of the guys on that list, and then the Padres kind of handpicked him, claw machine style, lifted him up and dropped him into the bin to to go to D.C. So there's just no way you leave a playoff-bound Padres team where they're selling out and the atmosphere is electrifying, and you go to Washington and you feel good about that. Uh, So I do feel for him, but... Hopefully, best case scenario, honestly, he finishes the season strong, hits you know a handful, seven, eight home runs maybe down the stretch, swings for some power, and maybe he becomes a piece you could move this offseason because right now they got three DHs. You know, they, they don't necessarily need that. Manessis, Nelson Cruz, Luke Voigt, um, one of those, two of those guys, probably expendable, but the trade deadline's over. None of those guys are getting moved now. So team could look very, very different next year. Obviously, Nelson Cruz, unlikely to be here. I mean, Manessis, you know, take him or leave him, is just kind of a minor league organizational soldier type. May or may not be here. Voight is under contract and fairly controllable, so he'd be the likely DH next season, I would say. But if someone's interested in him, and I, I can't imagine there would be a, a ton of interest, but maybe if he has a strong finish to the year, 
he wants out, you know, or wants the chance to go compete somewhere in his 30s, you, you could do something like that. I don't know. Uh, but be interesting to at least watch him. He's a reason to, to keep watching, I suppose, because it's a, it's a fresh face uh, the rest of the way. And that's kind of what we're trying to figure out is what are the reasons to keep watching. I would tell you that Kbert Ruiz is right at the top of that list with Luis Garcia. Those are building blocks, everyday players. Ruiz, we now know, can't play short, but you're going to move him to second. He's going to be your starting second baseman of the future. The hands are legit. I mean, he can drop the barrel. Had a really, really impressive double with lightning-fast hands this past week. Matter of fact, it was the night of the trade deadline. He barreled into the gap. and was talking to someone with the Nats, and they said, did you see that? You know, that's what we love about this guy. They, they really think he's going to hit big league pitching and velocity and, and good big league pitching, which is great. He just can't play short. So you move him to second. Abrams is going to play short. Hopefully Brady House plays third. And, and you got the makings of a homegrown infield for the future. But those two guys, Ruiz behind the plate and Garcia at second, hopefully very soon when Abrams gets the bump, are definitely worth watching. I would put Josiah Gray on that list. You know, Josiah Gray, it has not been pretty lately. I think you guys know that. He's really struggled with the long ball here of late. We're talking about one of the highest home run totals in Major League Baseball, kind of circuit to circuit this year. And his ERA is now ballooned to almost five at 4.92 through 20 starts. The stuff is really good, though. He's got 122 strikeouts in 106 innings. Even here recently when he's been victimized by home runs, you know, he's striking out at least a batter or more per inning. But you know, his last seven starts, his ERA is almost seven. His last 15 starts, his ERA is five and a half. So it has been a struggle for Josiah Gray. His whip is 1.4 over his last seven. I mean, that's basically two times what, like, a dominant reliever would have, I would say. But it's it's certainly um, indicative of the occasional walk, and he's getting hit too hard right now. I haven't cooled on, on how I feel about him. I, I love Gray, and I'm, I'm really excited about his future. Uh, the 24-year-old has proven this season that he's a, a big league starting pitcher. The question for me on Josiah Gray, who when he pitches is, is must-see TV the rest of the way and a reason to keep watching, is he going to be a, a frontline type starter? Can he be a, a number two? Or is he more of a, a mid-rotation type guy? You know, He's got three pitches technically, fastball, curveball, slider. However, I still think he needs a changeup to get uh, hitters off of the velocity because as – Good as his fastball velo is, it doesn't miss bats as frequently as you would like. Uh, control has is, is not necessarily been an issue, but command has been. The difference, as we talk about on this pod sometimes, control, being able to throw the ball over the plate, and command is you know being able to locate within the strike zone, hit the mitt, throw to a quadrant, which has not always been a strength for him uh, this year. And, and Davies talked a lot about that. He's got to get ahead, and he's got to pelt the strike zone more often, but specifically, you know, throw quality strikes. So it's been a rough go. This is part of the development, and and this is a long season, right? You're talking about six months of baseball. I always like to say 183 business days. I think those numbers have changed after the strike uh, shortener lockout, whatever the hell it was way back when, uh, situation at the beginning of the year. But for a half year, every five days you're going out there, and it's a grind, and this is his first full big league season. So you kind of expect the dog days here to get to you, but a little bit discouraging, a little bit frustrating, but in the grand scheme of things, you, know, you line him up, you keep him healthy to be in the middle of the rotation next year, and I think you, you have a nice season to build on for him if, if he can have a decent September coming up or you know a nice stretch, string together two, three, four good starts uh, down the road here. 
Patrick Corbin, I mentioned, though, I wanted to talk about. You, you got to do something here, Nats. I mean, you just have to. I'm sorry. It's time. They cannot continue to trot Patrick Corbin out every five days anymore. Not when he's not getting out of the first inning. See, Patrick Corbin's value to the Nationals was that he could save you relievers, save your arms in the bullpen, because no matter what, you knew he would just wear it. Even if he was struggling, he was going to give you five innings. And if you really wanted to push him into the 100-plus pitches, you know he could pitch six innings at a time for you. And occasionally, go back and look. He'll throw seven. He'll throw eight when teams are trying to attack him on the first pitch strategically to stay away from two strikes and that slider. And he did that a few times this year where he would get really deep into starts. There is value in that. I would always say when, when folks would tell me and when I talk to people at the ballpark, you got to get rid of Patrick Corbin. They've got to DFA him. They've got to release him or something. I would say, look, there is a little bit of value still, even while he's been awful, because he does save your bullpen, because he does give you known innings in a rotation where you don't always know what you're getting out of a Josiah Gray or an Eric Fetty. You don't expect any length out of Paolo Espino, four innings at a time-ish, five if you're lucky. Same with Anibal Sanchez. You can't just keep running through your bullpen the way that they do. So you have to have a guy who can wear it a little bit. And that was Patrick Corbin's role. Guess what? Patrick Corbin can't get out of the first inning in two of his last three starts. So that part of it is gone. Uh, he is right now leading the league in losses. By the way, for his second straight year, he's going to lose well over 20 games, which nobody's done in years in baseball. Uh, he is leading the league in hits allowed. He's leading the league in earned runs allowed. Last year, he led the league in losses and in earned runs and in home runs allowed. The year before that, he led the league in hits allowed. Uh, it has been a disastrous post-19 for Corbin. You guys know that. 2020 was kind of the beginning of the end when his ERA was 4.6, and he gave it the most hits in the sport. But even then, his FIP, meaning the, the fielding independent pitching, like what his ERA should be based on what he controls, was 4.17. So I could make the case coming out of 20. Yeah, really bad year, but... You know, maybe it was just a one-off. Oh, by the way, it was the pandemic. The offseason wasn't normal. Maybe he didn't build up his arm strength. There's a lot of ways to make excuses for him, and the Nats did. So then we fast forward to 2021, where you have a full season, and a ramp up, normal offseason, and he can get back to being Patrick Corbin. And then we saw with the league-leading loss total, earned runs total, home runs total, that 2020 was not a fluke and that he just didn't really have it anymore. Again, his ERA 5.82 was worse than his fielding independent pitching, which was 5.41. So you kind of heard the comments from the Nats, the people that I trust and talk to, would say things like, oh, but he wasn't quite as bad as the numbers. Well, I would hope not. I mean, the numbers were really bad. But I digress. So then you have an offseason where you don't add pitching. Uh, we all know how we got here, that they trade off some of their pieces, and then Strasburg ends up still not recovering and wasn't healthy at the start of the year. So Corbin is pitching on opening night this year against the Mets, remember? He was their opening day starter. And this has kind of always been my point with Corbin. You can justify paying him and allowing him to have a five-and-a-half ERA as your fifth starter who gobbles up innings for you. You can do that, no problem. The issue is that he's pitching on opening day and he's your number one starter. That doesn't work. And, oh, by the way, now you're not gobbling up the innings as it is. But 
You go into this season and you say, you know what? He had a really bad year. We don't really count 2020 at all. This is the Nats saying this probably. Yeah, it was a strange thing. It was a fluke. But 2021, look, look at the end of the season. He got a lot better at the end of the year. He started to show signs. We like how he finished. I mean, these are things they were saying, and they were confident he was going to be better. He's got an ERA of 7.02. Now, I will say that his fielding independent pitching, again, what his ERA should be if you take kind of luck and some things out of the pitcher's control, out of the equation, is in the fours, 4.96. It's actually better than it's been over the last year and a half or so. And so the Nationals are going to be able to play that game again where they say, oh, he's he's not as bad as his numbers. But my God, I mean, I, I would have played that game with him, you know, maybe six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. When you're just getting rocked in the first inning, like no one through through 23 starts has had an ERA over seven in the majors in years and years. This is hard to do. 110 innings, and he's allowed 86 earned runs. You know, now up to 21 home runs on the season. It's it's bad. It's tough to watch. So what are your options, right? That, that's the big question. What are they going to do about this? I think among their options are you could IL him. And I've been kind of looking today before I taped the pod here Monday afternoon. I was kind of hoping that some news would come out one way or the other on what their plan was with Corbin so that we could tell you so that it's not dated if it comes out after we post. But what I would do is I would put him on the injured list. And it, it we call it a phantom IL in the industry, but there's always something with these guys that is actually injured listable, if you will. Like, no one's 100% this deep into the season. No one. Physically, mentally, emotionally, you're just not. So there's absolutely a way that you could put them on the IL and say something's barking, something's problematic. That's number one. Number two, if you don't want to put them on the injured list and just give them a couple weeks off where you don't have to worry about seeing him pitch and he gets to clear his head, which is what I would do, you could move him to the bullpen. And that might be the most realistic thing that they do, honestly, is they just move him to the pen, give him two, three innings at a time. You know, maybe at, at that point he's he kind of has an opener and it's like he's still a starter, but someone pitches an inning or two before he throws. And then his job is to get you through the sixth or something. But that would be the the other, I would say, realistic option is, for now, you're no longer starting. We'll pitch you twice a week, three innings or so at a time. And we'll see how that works. Remember, David Price makes unbelievable money with the Dodgers and is a left-hander now coming out of their bullpen as occasionally a multi-inning guy who they are trying to get the most out of because he'd really, really, really struggled. So I think that's an option with Patrick Corbin. And then the other option, which is not realistic, not happening, not plausible, I'll go on record and maybe look foolish uh, if something happens other than what I'm predicting, I guess would be to, to just DFA him and eat the rest of the money. And I don't see that happening. Um, for a lot of reasons, but most notably, I think they believe that, A, he's better than he's pitched. I mean, it's a harder case to make after now three seasons almost. But, I mean, they believe he's been better in every single season than his numbers. Also, again, just pitching every fifth day and having a veteran in your rotation with all these young guys, to them, is meaningful and valuable, and they like that. And they think there's something good about that. So that's part of, I think, why they would not move on from him. And I'm not sure I would right now either. I mean, if you're going to do that at this point, the offseason is probably a more likely time to do it. Uh, But I think you could experiment and try some other things first. So 
I would go with the IL route. They'll probably go with the bullpen route or heck. I mean, the way things have gone the last couple of years, maybe they'll just decide they're going to keep throwing them every fifth day. And uh, we're just going to have to keep watching it. Speaking of watching, though, I did do a lot of sifting through Facebook and looking at pictures of my old girlfriend. I have been obsessed with watching Juan Soto for the Padres so far. It has been a lot more Juan Soto monitoring, like looking in through his window uncomfortably, than I anticipated, to be completely honest with you. I thought, oh, he'll be traded and he'll just be on the West Coast and I won't have to worry about it. And I'm sure I'll get to a point where I'm not watching every at-bat and watching every Padres game, but I'm not at that point yet. And luckily for all of us, he was on Sunday Night Baseball against the Dodgers, nationally televised. And they had him mic'd up in the outfield, talking about his time in Washington and why he turned down the contract and saying, you know, I had nothing to do with it. it. I just leave it up to my agent, and this is the decision they made. It's been a trying several days since the Soto trade. But I want nothing but good things for him. I hope he and Josh Bell win a World Series I want them to make the playoffs and then come out of the NL and and win another ring. I love both of those guys, and specifically, I just can't thank Soto enough for what he did in D.C., and you guys know how I felt about the trade already. I don't need to re-legislate that, but I don't want to trade Juan Soto. I never wanted to trade Juan Soto. You should never trade Juan Soto, but if he's not resigning, which is my opinion, that he was not going to resign, then you have to recoup as much as possible, and they're in a terrible spot in their system and didn't have enough talent coming. So I kind of viewed it as a no-brainer opportunity to try to add pieces that could end up helping you and and not knowing. I mean, not all those guys are going to make the big leagues and be great, whether it's Abrams or Gore or James Wood or Robert Hassel or, um, you know, Yarlin Susana. Like, it's not all going to be pretty. I I get that. Some of those guys are going to fizzle out and other guys are just going to bomb. And and ideally, two of them become really good big leaguers. And anything more than that is probably a slam dunk for Rizzo. But. The point is to recoup as much talent as possible. And, I mean, imagine if they only got three guys, right? And it, Like, that's normal. Three really good players in a deal. Well, then maybe one works out or none, right? So you, you gave yourself the best chance possible to kind of restock the system here, which I liked. And without re-legislating too much, I have made peace with and feel okay about and was totally on board with the trade before it happened. But it has been very painful. And I will say that having been at Nats Park since, I went – to the day game, 4.05 on Wednesday, the day after the Tuesday deadline. One of the days where they got their teeth kicked in by the Mets. It was way worse than I expected, just in terms of sitting there and watching Joey Manessis and Josh Palacios and um, Ildeberto Vargas, I think, had a four-hit game, if if I'm even saying that right. Uh, (laughs) I believe is his name, uh, who I hadn't heard of before he was in the organization recently. He started in the big leagues elsewhere earlier in the year. It's it's just going to be a long time. Uh, the rest of this summer is going to feel like forever, and it's it's going to when you go to the ballpark. Trust me on this; it's it's harder than you think. First time I'd say I was talking to a longtime DC sports writer about this actually, and they said, you know, you've always had someone to watch, whether it was Ryan Zimmerman or. Uh, Juan Soto or Bryce Harper. I mean, there, there was always somebody, and now there's not. And if you're a baseball nerd or you're a, into the future like I am with K 
Barrett Ruiz or Luis Garcia or, or maybe it's JoJo Gray on the hill or whatever, then certainly there's someone worth monitoring. But the point is there is no star anymore. There is no top-tier player that you go to see, a la Zimmerman in his prime, before handing the torch to Bryce, who handed the torch to maybe Turner, who handed the torch to Soto with Rendon having carried it plenty of days in the meantime. Um, we're just at a point where there isn't a guy that, that you go to watch, and it's, it is hard. It's been more difficult than I thought. All right, I want to uh, get some quick takes from producer Darris, though, to get some fan perspective on the pod here before we hear from Kylie McDaniel on the system, and I'll update you on how things are going in the minor leagues for the guys that have been acquired. But, uh, Darris, we've had some time now to process. We've seen the, the aftermath of the trade. How are you feeling? Um... Grant, it's been tough. It's been tough. To, <laughs> it's been tough to watch the team beyond this so far. It was a great weekend, though. They really played well in Philly. Yeah, no, <laughs> I can't. I can't even banter with you in a joking yeah. way on that. It, not, it, you're it, like uh, Aaron Rodgers in his interview. I think with the part of my take guys where they made a joke, and he's like, "That's not actually funny. I don't, I don't no, find that funny at all." No, not funny at all. Um, I, that's. I think that's the the point that you've been bringing up is. What is there to watch? And it should be that you're here to watch Luis Garcia continue to develop. But then when he goes and sp- spikes a ball into the other team's uh, into the other team's dugout, you, all you can do is shake your head and put your put your face in your palm. It, and, and then you you just see all the excitement and the national attention that Juan is getting and Josh Bell is getting on the other side of the country. You know, it's a a little disheartening, but I think we talked about this before. We talked about this early on in the life of this podcast. This this is the process. Now, we didn't know that losing Juan was going to be a part of the process at the time. We thought that would come two years later (laughs) via free agency as opposed to a trade. Uh, But but as far as the rebuilding process and and, and where we're going to be in a couple years after that, uh, this is what we talked about before. And and, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be rough for us to get through this, but we will get to a point where this team will be watchable again. This team will have young stars that are rising, and you know maybe at some point we'll have an owner that will spend in free agency that will help build along with those young stars. Yeah, that is the dream scenario. I, I think you get the new owner in here that spends in the offseason. I doubt they'll spend much in that first offseason this year because you're not close, right? But they're going to have to do something. I mean, because this is not a major league team they're fielding, and you can't have this team going into a season on an opening day next year or something like it and and continue to charge the prices that they do. So either you have to lower prices substantially for tickets and everything else, or you actually go out and add some major league talent, which I'm sure they'll do. But if, you know, things go the way that we think and and Robert Hassel's in the big leagues and CJ Abrams is in the majors and Mackenzie Gore's in the majors, you know, within the next couple of years and and you're spending a little bit in free agency, then you're going to be ultra competitive again, ideally within the division you know, even as soon as two years from now, I hopefully. And that's kind of what this trade maybe gives you a chance to do. Uh, speaking of Hassel, I wanted to talk about what some of the minor leaguers have done since they came over. So Hassel is at Wilmington in A-plus ball. He's played in four games as we talk here on Monday. He's 0 for his first 13 at the plate. Not ideal. Uh, he does have three runs, and he has stolen a pair of bases. I uh, haven't gotten on and driven in a run. I uh, walked in a run as well. So... Remember, he was hitting 300 and was in the middle of a, a slump, um, was kind of trending down after getting off to a great start in the Midwest League, in the A-plus league uh, that he was playing in 
in San Diego system. But it has been a slow start. Oh, for his first 13 in Wilmington. Not concerned at all, but, uh, man, it's hard. I mean, you you know, you just got traded. Your life's kind of turned upside down. So he's trying to get it together. James Wood made an instant impact in his second game in Fredericksburg, I believe it was. Uh, might have even been his debut in Fredericksburg. He went four for five, uh, four-hit game early last week. He's now five for 15 overall at the plate. So those four hits looming large. Has a home run and three batted in already. Uh, with the Fred Nats in low A ball. So if you need a reason to go to Fredericksburg, he is definitely one of them. He is absolutely on that short list. You know, you got uh, Jackson Rutledge has been pitching a little bit better. They have um, uh, Andrew Lara is there as well, uh, who's one of the higher-end pitching prospects in the system. Um, that's a good squad in general. Uh, I like T.J. White, a couple other guys on that Fredericksburg team. But, yeah, he's definitely the main attraction. C.J. Abrams was assigned to AAA, even though he had been in the big leagues. Uh, when the trade was made, and in the International League now in three games in Rochester, um, he is 3-4-11 at the plate, so about a two seventy five average, but he's got a pair of doubles and has driven in a run. Um, already has a stolen base in those three games. He had just 10 stolen bases in 140 at-bats uh, in El Paso in the PCL, but I think the Nats are going to ask him to, to run a little bit more. Part of the reason they wanted him was his athleticism. And then I haven't heard the plan yet for Yarlan Susana in terms of pitching. We know that he's going to start in Florida before he eventually gets to Fredericksburg. But uh, I do not believe he has thrown yet. Generally, whatever cautious is or like slow or methodical, just go two levels below that. And that's what the Nationals do. So maybe he'll pitch sometime in like four years or something like that. But um, so far, we are waiting on Yarlan Susana. Hopefully, he gets an outing in Fredericksburg before the end of the year. But I suppose I shouldn't hold my breath. Uh, Mackenzie Gore told reporters that he is going to um, start throwing. Remember, he came on our show on Grant and Danny, and I think we put the interview on the podcast last week and said that the injury was minor and that he planned on um, being on the hill and, and throwing again within a couple of weeks. So that still sounds like it's the plan for Mackenzie Gore. Let, let me ask you about Abrams. Uh, one, do you do you think we do see him by September? I and do, the- yes. I, I actually think he'll be up like this week. Okay. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. I mean, I had people with the team basically tell me it's going to be a couple of weeks. They referenced what they did with Ruiz. Remember when they sent Ruiz down for like two weeks? Yeah, yeah. I don't really understand why they say to get accustomed to the organization. I don't know what that means, <laughs> especially when you're going to be spending more time in the big league. So getting comfortable in Rochester doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I digress. Um, but yeah, so they, if that's true, if, if that's really what they're comping this to, well, then this weekish seems about right. And then uh, it seems like it's under-talked about, but... I think Abrams coming up is a huge deal for being able to move Luis Garcia to second base, and that seems under-talked about to me. Totally agree. You know, earlier in the pod, I was referencing that we have enough information now on Luis Garcia that he can't play shortstop. And that's not to be rude or mean or anything like that. It's just he's not a shortstop. A lot of guys aren't a shortstop. Hundreds and thousands and millions of people are not shortstops. He just happens to be one of them. So that's fine. You just move him to second and let him hit and, and no harm, no foul. Uh, but, yes, I agree with you. You get Abrams up to play short. You move Garcia over to second, and I think it's a really good thing. I love it. I love the the potential of what that duo can be going forward for a long time. All right, so as promised then, Darius, let's let the people hear from Kylie McDaniel of ESPN on the Nationals system, which he ranked 10th, top 10 now, in all of baseball after their big Soto deal. Dang, zoom. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN, is their minor league insider and prospects expert and guru. You saw him all over their draft coverage. He joins us now. Kylie, thanks for the time. How's it been? 
Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to talk with you again. Look, it's not a victory or some kind of like party that we're throwing to be back in the top 10 because it took Juan Soto and Josh Bell. But it has been a long time since there was a reason for Nats fans to be excited about some of the young talent coming through the pipeline. You just give us an example of what the system was, say, two years ago before they sold off eight trades last deadline. And then now this year with with Soto and, and some of the strides that they've made. Yeah, I mean, it had been a bottom five system for a while because there, as you were sort of referencing, there had been a sort of steady flow of, well, at the deadline, they trade some mid-tier guys to beef up the team and get some short-term help. And then, um, you know, some of the really high-end prospects, like the, the approach that uh, Mike Rizzo takes is we're going we're gonna to shoot for the moon. We're going to draft the Cade Cavalli, the Brady House, you know, the guys that are at the top of the system right now. That includes Mason Denneberg and uh, includes Jackson Rutledge, some guys that haven't done quite as well or up to expectations maybe. Uh, but that also means that, um, you know, Juan Soto and, uh, you know, some of the some of the other guys that have reached the big leagues, obviously like Harper and Strasburg, those guys that are really upside that hit, they don't stay in the system very long. So it's basically the guys that are in the system are the ones that got drafted a year or two ago. Some of them are getting traded. And then the ones that have like stagnated and haven't gotten there and they're not adding, they're typically subtracting to help the team. And so in the last year, they've been adding to the system, subtracting from the big league team, and then also have, have been adding in the draft as well and internationally. And so now you've sort of added up where they're in accumulation mode. And it, once you do accumulation mode with the multiple big trades for a year or two, you pretty much end up in the top 10 one way or another. And they're there right now. And I would say the, the other thing to keep in mind is with Kaiba Ruiz and Mackenzie Gore as recently graduated um, in the last month or two, uh, they would be second if both of those guys were eligible. But then also C.J. Abrams, who is on the list right now, if he plays two more games in the big leagues, he will not be eligible. That would then move them down to 16th. So there's that range from second to 16th. If you have three guys in the top, you know, fourth or top third of the top 100, it, it moves you a ton based on the way I do the rankings, which is heavily weighted toward top half of the top 100 kind of talents, which is sort of, you know, it's empirically, it's based on evidence. But like, as, as I think your listeners would guess, those top end of the top 100 guys are extremely valuable. And they, they've had a number of those coming into the system of late. Yeah. So before I ask you about a bunch of these guys specifically, your system is super unique. It's kind of got a monetary value to it. Can you explain it a little bit? Because a lot of the other systems, you know, that are out there or just other sites ranking, you know, might have the Nats higher up or different than what you're going to have because you do it in a unique way that I enjoy. Yeah, so the idea is I have always been, and I've, you know, there's there's some some some, some scientific uh, studies based on this, uh, if you'd like to sort of dive down. But the idea of looking at the top 30 to 50 prospects for 30 different teams, you're considering over a thousand data points and then say, Oh, this one's 12th and this one's 13th. And I feel good about that. It's patently ridiculous that someone can do that or a group of people can do that. That's just too many data points to consider. So you have to come up with some sort of uh, rubric or you know structure to give you an idea and maybe say this team's in the 10 to 15th area. I'm sure of that. They could be 10th or 15th. Maybe I can massage it a little bit. And when we came up with at Fangraphs, uh, when I worked with Eric Longenhagen there, there's a guy named Craig Edwards who now works for the MLB uh, Pledge Association. He went back and basically said, okay, if a guy is ranked here on a prospect list all the way down to the, you know, the 30th, 40th guy in the system, they will produce this much war, which is you know, sort of the best catch-all number, hitters, pitchers, fielders, everybody. It gives uh, a measure of what they'll do. And then we can go look at free agency and say, oh, one war costs anywhere from 8 to $10 million the last couple of years. So we can then say, you know, if this war is supposed to come five years from now or three years from now, taking just a couple of those variables. So how good are they going to be? How long will it take for it to happen? 
Um, and then how much is a win worth, which that's, you know, consistent throughout everybody um, that's currently in the minor leagues. Uh, you then can get a value on each player. And the value would essentially be if you were to, if the player, you know, was up for auction as a player, you would still be paying their salary throughout their six to seven years of player control. This number that teams would pay is how much they are worth above and beyond that player. So basically they're for, they're, those years of control were like, they can't hit free agency those six or seven years. How much would you pay to get access to those years? That's the number we're sort of spitting out. And so the average farm system is, you know, 215, 225 million, depending on what time of year you do it and things like that. And so Washington's at 268. Um, but it is, a, you know, it's only like 10, 15% more to be third um, in all of baseball. So they're 10th, but they're in an area where a lot of teams are bunched together. And so one or two additional trades, either ingoing or outgoing, can move teams a lot. Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. All right, so let's then dive into the system a little bit here. What did you make of the return in the Soto deal? I, I thought if there was a trade was done uh, at the deadline this year, knowing that A.J. Preller and San Diego Padres were involved in the bidding, and it sounds like, in retrospect, it was going to happen one way or another at this time, knowing they were involved, I thought they would get full value, and I think that's what they did. The buzz I had heard going into this is that C.J. Abrams, the shortstop, second base, center field, maybe third base, you know, he fits somewhere around there. He was the guy that was now available that had not been available this entire time. Like, San Diego obviously has traded a ton of players uh, to upgrade their big league team, he was in the group of three or four guys. Him and McKenzie Gore were both in that group for years, like maybe three years, um, where they were not available in any trade talks. Both of them sort of became available this year when they were hunting for that, you know, the big game of Juan Soto and Josh Bell as well. So it was thought that he would be on the table. And then the guys that were recently uh, drafted in James Wood and uh, Yarlin Susana, um, that those guys would also be available. And the question was, what would be the other piece? Would there be another piece? Uh, would you need one? And Robert Hassel, the center fielder that was the first-round pick in 2020, he was thought to be the one that was off-limits, the one that San Diego would hold on to. Uh, if you look at prospect lists, including mine, I, I think I still have Abrams a little ahead, but it's essentially a toss-up. They're you know, somewhere between 5th and 10th, somewhere around there on the top 100, and they had two of them. Um, and so the question was basically, do they keep Hassel back and then throw in a couple more players like Dylan Lesko and Jackson Merrill, two other uh, highly regarded prospects from the top couple rounds of the last few years of the draft, or Robbie Snelling, uh, Luis Campisano. There were three or four pieces left that you could include. The question was, does Hassel get included, or do you then grab a couple more of guys from that group? And Hassel got included. So I'd say kudos to Mike Rizzo, and I think also he had a very motivated bidder um, in A.J. Freller because the guy that everyone thought he was going to hold back, he ended up not holding back. He just sort of went – um, uh, Yo, the Yolo GM for our times, as I called him on TV a couple days ago. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, I mean Preller just—he's he, on team. Get bleep done. You know, you want him picking up that phone because he's going to work something out with. You. He's like the uh, dude in every fantasy league you're in. That's always trying to make yes. the, the the deal at midnight every single night. Um, okay, he's constantly sending offers. He's very interested in everyone else's <laughs> right. players. Like exactly, and some level doesn't seem interested in his own players because he's so interested in everyone else's players. All he cares about is the guys that are on your roster, no doubt. So I don't even know if this is instructive. And feel free to tell me you think this is a dumb question because it probably is. But if I was to compare what they got to some of like the rumored deals with the other teams, and, and this is why it's silly, is we don't know if these were actual offers that may have panned out. But I was thinking about like the Cardinals or the Dodgers, those systems had guys further along, either in double and triple A, Jordan Walker's case. Uh, the, the Dodgers certainly with like your Pepios and your um, Vargas's, those types. This is a little bit more guesswork for a team that has struggled to, to develop, right? I mean, it's a, 
It's A ball, Robert Hassel, A plus. It's it's A ball, Loe, Fredericksburg, James Wood. It's not even that in in Yarlin Susana. What's your thought on that part of the fact that yeah, you got a ton, but there is a little bit more projecting and developing that still needs to be done with these guys. Well, I would say I think LA I don't think was actually a bitter that like that move does not sort of jive uh, with what they've been doing the last few years, and I think they probably uh, entered into the bidding uh, per reports late because they wanted to run the price up on AJ Preller, thinking there, there was a team that had more trade ammunition than they did oh, that was interested. So like I needed to bid aggressively to make sure they didn't beat me. I think St. Louis is the other one that was a threat. And I'm not sure they would have lined up the top of their system. Jordan Walker, Mason, Wynn, Libertor, Zach Thompson, Gordon Graceffo, Alec Burleson. These were kind of the names that were mentioned. Tink Hentz, uh, Josh Baez, like that, that's their group of six or eight guys and you could argue that Walker, Mason, Wynn, those two guys are both in the top 25 or 30 in all of baseball, Walker in the top 10. Those two are comparable pieces to Abrams and Hassel. And they could have lined up something that was pretty comparable. And as you're saying, these guys are generally in AA, AAA. They're a little further along. I don't think they would have offered sort of equal value to what San Diego did because I think San Diego was so motivated to do it. And I would also say, again, going back to Mike Rizzo's uh, general approach to how he wants to build a system, like the last three drafts, it has been uh, Elijah Green, the riskiest player in the top 10 picks, maybe in the entire draft um, in terms of you know upside versus what it could be. Brady House, probably the risk- riskiest guy in last year's draft was who we took in the first round. Um, Jackson Rutledge, Kate Kavali, they are all on the extreme end of the risk-reward um, ledger. And so getting uh, Hassel, who's still an A-ball, but is like a, a relatively like high-floor player. He's like a hit-first guy that doesn't have bananas tools. Abrams is near the big leagues, but comes with like a pretty wide gap between what he is right now and what he could be. Um, and then James Wood and Susana. James Wood was a second-round pick last year. He was taking like 50 picks behind Brady House, and I think he's almost as good now. Like He has dramatically improved. Uh, and Susana is like the definition of far from the big leagues, high risk, high reward. It's a 6'6", 235 righty up to 101 that doesn't really know where the ball's going yet. Uh, that's in rookie ball. And he's got the components. Like he has been walking tons of guys, but it's still pretty early. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, Hassel is a low risk player. Abrams is essentially big league ready in one way or another. So I don't think the uh, the profile of this haul was wildly different than St. Louis's offer, whatever it was. I don't think St. Louis would have offered as much as San Diego did, though. Makes sense. Uh, you can read Kylie McDaniel's work at ESPN. You mentioned Hassel here. We could start with him in terms of just a quick breakdowns on some of these guys and, and some thoughts on timelines. He's in A+, but, you know, they could have. He, he was performing really well at A+. They they could have him in the year if they wanted to at Double A. I mean, how far off do you think he is, and what kind of big leaguer ultimately do you think he'll be? So he was a guy that I have a ton of history with. I'm in Atlanta, uh, and he was in East, East Tennessee, uh, and he would he was going to these sort of national showcase events a year before uh, everybody goes. So I I remember seeing him after his sophomore year of high school and thinking, oh, this guy kind of looks like Nick Markakis. He's a really good hitter with like sort of tweener skills, but he was like 16 years old. So it's like obviously you know guys get bigger and stronger and faster. And then the next year he showed up was bigger, stronger, and faster as a 17-year-old, and it was like, oh, this guy, he's a dude. He's going to play center field. He's got enough power for average raw power. He can run and play center field, but he's not an amazing athlete. He's enough of an athlete to play center field, and he can really, really hit and has been identified as a guy that's one of the best hitters in his class and sort of grew into the raw tools but was has always been a hit-first guy. And that's largely been uh, what it's, what's been like in pro ball where this guy's going to hit 270, 280. He's going to draw some walks. He's not going to strike out that much. And the question is, is the power going to be 12 to 15 homers? Is it going to be 15 to 20? 
Is he one of those guys that has average raw power and figures out a way to hit 25 in the big leagues? Is it possible that he beefs up, hits 25 homers, and then ends up playing right field instead of center field? Like, that's sort of the question is, he's going to hit, he's going to be at least a low-end everyday player. He is, like, almost assured of being an everyday player, which is why I'm saying he's a, he's a high-floor player for an A-ball player. You don't say that about many players that are an A-ball right now. The question is, how much impact will it be and what exactly will it look like? Because he's still sort of tapping in uh, to the power, but the the approach and the hit are among the best of the minor leagues. So then do you consider him, everyone ranks him, it seems like, higher than James Wood, even though Wood has a much higher ceiling, in my opinion. Like he could, if one of those guys becomes an MVP, it's more likely that it's James Wood, but yet he doesn't have the floor that Hassel has. And, and this, I guess, goes to just your basic development and prospect rankings debates in general, but how do you juxtapose those guys with, with Wood being 19, 6, 7, 240, and having made major swing adjustments? Yeah, Wood, Wood is yeah the definition of this could be almost anything. Uh, like I said, he, after uh, last summer, the same summer um, events where Hassel went and looked like a you know high top half of the first rounder, essentially, uh, James Wood looked like a middle of the first rounder. When the spring started, I think I ranked him 15th on my draft rankings. He had a terrible spring playing at IMG Academy where they're basically facing like low-end college pitching, but high school kids go there. And there was something about it. Was it his swing? Was it his approach? Was he trying to go opposite way? You just couldn't quite figure it out. But for reference, when he was mashing over the summer, he kind of looked like Kyle Tucker. It was like tall and lanky, no batting gloves, really loose swing. And when he tapped into his power, it would be like jaw-dropping stuff. Like this guy might hit 40 home runs one day if it all comes together. Because, again, he's 6'7", 240. He's so big. He could continue getting bigger. And he's a plus runner uh, at that point. I think he's probably closer to about a 55 runner now. But, like, this guy is, is extremely athletic, even for being that size. And when you make a list of guys that have potential 40 home run power, maybe realistically 30, that are 6'7 and are great athletes, like, it's a list of two or three players, and it's like Aaron Judge. It, like, it's a pretty short list. Uh, O'Neal Cruz, guys like that. Um, and so once he got into pro ball, uh, he slipped to the 62nd overall pick for an overslot bonus to San Diego because they believed, like, oh, this guy is more what he was in the summer, not what he was in the spring. And he just immediately was the best version of himself. He had never been this good before and has been terrorizing the minor leagues while also, you know, striking out a good bit. And then he came out this spring and was walking almost as much as he was striking out and hitting a ton of home runs and showing the raw power and is, like, taking it up in even another gear. So now the question is, okay, is he on the trajectory that he is going to be some version of O'Neill Cruz, Aaron Judge, like that kind of just physical monster with huge tools that cannot be denied? Or is he good in A ball and once he's 6'7 and starts seeing 95 on the black and then a plus slider off the plate in AAA, does this back up a little bit and he turns into more of a, you know, a little bit of swing and miss, but he's got some power. Uh, we'll see what it is. It's just the reason he's behind Hassel is it's a little bit new. He's giving you good and bad looks. And he's like 50 games into looking like a totally different guy. And that, again, sounds like the risk-reward profile that Mike Rizzo's looking for. Whereas Hassel, since he was like 16, you're like, oh, this guy's going to make the big leagues. He's going to hit. And James Wood, like there's, there's versions of this guy that like either don't make the big leagues or get called up because he was in a big trade, but he maybe doesn't deserve to be in the big leagues. Like That's still on the table for him. And that's not really on the table for Hassel and obviously is not on the table for Abrams. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. By the way, uh, just for Nats fans that haven't tracked it closely, I mean, James Wood already had a four for five with a homer and a steal in, in a game at Fredericksburg. So right away, you've kind of seen the skill set on display in, in his low A play. Uh, real, uh, another one on Abrams real quick then would be, I don't know that I've ever seen a guy play so little in the minor leagues who's already played as much as he has in the big leagues. And I know the 2020 pandemic's a big reason why, but he's only 21. I mean, if he hadn't played in the show yet, 
I just feel like people would like him a lot more than they do publicly. And people look at his batting average or something in the majors. He's 21. He's got like 100 minor league games to his name. It seems like the, the love for him has cooled a little bit, maybe unfairly. Yeah, he's interesting to me. He's another guy. I mean, he's in Atlanta, and I'm in Atlanta. So I saw him as like a freshman, sophomore in high school. Uh, and to me, when he was at his best, he kind of looked like Kenny Lofton. It's like lanky 6-1-6-2, will continue to fill out, is extremely athletic, uh, is twitchy. And then his senior year going into uh, high school, his draft year, he started hitting the ball over the scoreboard at his field, which is like a normal size field. And I remember I went to go see him, and it was A.J. Preller, Logan White, like the four or five dudes that make the decisions. <laughs> for the Padres yeah. were all sitting there, and they kind of looked at me like, you're going to tweet that we're at this game, aren't you? Like everyone knew they were going to draft him <laughs> if he got to their pick. Uh, and they did. Um, so the, the question with him was at that point, he is a 70 or 80 grade runner, 80 being the fastest you can be in the big league. So like game changing speed, he does not look the smoothest at shortstop. He's not the most fluid guy when it comes to just how his hands and feet um, organize themselves. But in terms of athleticism, he has the raw tools to do it, but we're now three or four years into, he doesn't quite look the part at second or at short. And so the question is, well, do you put him at third where it's like a slightly different set of actions that might fit him a little bit better? Do you put him at second? So everything's just a little bit, shorter again in actions or do you stick him in center field and let him run around um and that may fit him the best because he's a little more of a closing speed long speed think of him as like a lanky like outside receiver in football he's like that kind of athlete um i don't think that's been decided yet i think he's fine at all of those places i think you should probably think of him as like you know the best versions of uh, bj melvin upton where it's like oh he can play anywhere ben zobris like he can play anywhere it's not that he's a utility guy it's that he plays a lot of positions and is always in the lineup but he's that kind of guy the the limitation, though, is that because I think San Diego believes so much in him, he missed the 2020 season after he signed because of the pandemic. He then had some injuries. There's not a ton of reps, and they rushed him. And so at the age that a lot of guys are, you know, juniors in college getting ready to go in the draft, he's in double-A, triple-A. Um, and so because the one limitation on his game is that he swings a little too much, so as pitching gets better, is he so gifted at making contact? Again, imagine Kenny Lofton. That guy can make contact with anything. If he's swinging at a bunch of pitches off the plate or swinging early in the count, is he going to get to all those tools? Is he going to get to, again, like Hassel, 12, 15 homers? Is he going to get to 20, 25 homers? All of that's still on the table. And he also could steal 40 bases if you're the kind of team that lets him steal bases. So that's why he's ranked so high. And I think part of the, uh, not souring, but like people being a little bit lower on him is because they rushed him so much and because his general skill set will be tested at the upper minors more than the Robert Hassel skill set, which I think also could be something that happens to James Wood. Um, it's the, the star is dimmed a bit. And there's a chance that if we're looking at the very low end, he could be a Jerickson Profar kind of player who was also one of the top two prospects in baseball when he got there with all the tools in the world, all the performance in the world, and it's just sort of been okay. Like that's kind of a worst-case scenario for him is a good low-end player that's like a little frustrating because he never quite gets to what he could be. He also could be a perennial all-star. And that's – as a guy that's in the big – or could be in the big leagues right now, has been in the big leagues, that's still on the table. That's more the profile of a guy in a ball like James Wood basically. All right, last one for you. Are you surprised we haven't seen Cade Cavalli in the big leagues yet? He's closing in on almost 30 starts in AAA. Yeah, a little a little surprised. Uh, he is another guy that, again, when we go back to the, the Mike Rizzo focus of I want high upside, I want uh, I want high risk, I want to get the most upside I can find. Uh, he Cavalli was a little bit of a late bloomer. Uh, I know we drafted him uh, uh, out of high school when I was with the Braves. Wasn't really signable then. He didn't pitch that much until his draft year, uh, which was the 2020 pandemic year. So obviously he didn't pitch a ton. It was more based on 
summer team USA stuff. So he came in as a big athletic upside guy that out of college still hadn't pitched that much because he was a little more of a first baseman actually um, in college. And uh, I would say the Nats pitching development doesn't have the greatest reputation in baseball for being at the Yankees, Guardians, Dodgers level. They're like a little behind that. Um, and so I think the thought around the industry is, well, he still needs to fine tune and you need to put him at the upper levels where his raw talent will actually be tested by hitters that are not overwhelmed by the raw stuff. You need to put him up in AAA, which is what happened. I mean, he's now, he's started 24 games in AAA. Uh, you need to put him up there to face guys that are close to big league level. And then once he's not getting challenged there anymore, then throw him in the big leagues. And so I think he's still at the point where he's still working on some stuff and still harnessing things, still doing the, you know, the pitch design, the, the real advanced stuff you have to do to get big league hitters out and trying to simulate that as best you can in AAA. But I would imagine at some point this year, at the very beginning of next year, I think he's, I think he's pretty close to being ready. That, or I'll just keep watching Anibal Sanchez and Paolo Espino at the big league level for a little while longer. I, I hope it's not a service time related thing, but he is the sort of player that maybe could use a little extra seasoning, even if it seems like he's succeeding in AAA. Yeah. Whereas there are other kinds of guys like Mackenzie Gore. Mackenzie Gore doesn't need to send AAA. Like he put him in the big leagues. Let him figure it out. Yeah, totally, totally with you. Hey, this has been great. A lot of wonderful information for our listeners who are now deep diving in, into some of these guys because that's kind of what matters for the Nationals. Really appreciate it, Kylie. Yep, thanks for having me. Long gone. So there you go. That's Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. You can check out his work, all things prospects and minor league player development. With that, we appreciate you guys listening. The Nats get their 8.05 East Time first pitch game underway this evening to start a three-game series at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And then on Friday night, the Padres at Nats Park for a three-game series, Juan Soto and Josh Bell. The reunion. Oh, right. Yeah. They come back home. That's great. Why wouldn't you want your ex-girlfriend to come stay at your house for a couple nights with her new boyfriend? Why wouldn't you want that? (laughs) You're just sleeping. You just hear all the noise that they're making. (laughs) Talking. A couple of rooms over. So annoying. They're just giggling and having a blast. So much giggling. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I hopefully there's a pretty good attendance for this weekend. Uh, that's the hope, just to to give Juan that, and, and Josh, that one last thank you. That, Absolutely. That, yeah, you know, ho- hopefully hopefully we get that. I think there's some good promos happening this weekend. So um, the leg warmers are actually performing one day this weekend. Hey now. Are you a leg warmers guy? I'm not, but oh, I, I like the idea of the leg I'm not in that I've never seen them. I think I like the idea of them. Like, I would probably enjoy the music that they play. <laughs> they, uh, Yeah, they are a blast. They put on a great show. We actually had them, I think, at a 1067 The Fan event a few years ago, back when we used to do live events uh, from the State Theater and stuff like that. But, yeah, They, they used to be at the, the State Theater in Falls Church all the there time. There you go. They're a blast. So they lead the league. Should the be a good theater. weekend to be at the ballpark uh, to, to see our ex-girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we might... Uh, Probably, we're going to see the biggest crowd at Nats Park that we'll see the rest of the season, for sure. And hopefully the Nats can play decent ball. Leave the terrible, embarrassing, non-competitive losses in Philadelphia. And if you need to get a couple more out of your system, Wrigley Field will be a good place to do it. But I need you coming back here. I need us to look as good as we can for Soto and Bell as they are checking us out now from afar. Uh, for Darius Grant saying so long, not Danny. Danny left us high and dry so we could go beach it. Uh, his much-deserved vacation. How dare him. The audacity of him. Boston Loose Baseball in the books. We are back later in the week. Thank you for listening. Please spread the word and uh, rate and review and say something nice about us so we can read your comments on the podcast coming up on Thursday.
Talk to you then.